Chapter 16 of Theophrastus Such by George Eliot. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 16 Moral Swindlers. It is a familiar irony in the degradation of words that what a man is worth has come to mean how much money he possesses. But there seems to be a deeper and more melancholy irony in the shrunken meaning that popular or polite speech assigns to morality and morals. The poor part these words are made to play recalls the fate of those pagan divinities who, after being understood to rule the powers of the air and the destinies of men, came down to the level of insignificant demons, or even made a farcical show for the amusement of the multitude. Talking to Melissa in a time of commercial trouble, I found her disposed to speak pathetically of the disgrace which had fallen on Sir Gavio Mantrap because of his conduct in relation to the Eocene mines and to other companies ingeniously devised by him for the punishment of ignorance in people of small means, a disgrace by which the poor, titled gentleman was actually reduced to live in comparative obscurity on his wife's settlement of one or two hundred thousand in the consuls. "'Surely your pity is misapplied,' said I, rather dubiously, for I like the comfort of trusting that a correct moral judgment is the strong point in women, seeing that she has a majority of about a million in our islands, and I imagine that Melissa might have some unexpressed grounds for her opinion. "'I should have thought you would rather be sorry for Mantrap's victims,' the widows, spinsters, and hard-working fathers whom his unscrupulous haste to make himself rich has cheated of all their savings, while he is eating well, lying softly, and after impudently justifying himself before the public, is perhaps joining in the general confession with a sense that he is an acceptable object in the sight of God, though decent men refuse to meet him. Oh, all that about the companies, I know, was most unfortunate. In commerce, people are led to do so many things, and he might not know exactly how everything would turn out. But Sir Gaviel made a good use of his money, and he is a thoroughly moral man. What do you mean by a thoroughly moral man, said I? Oh, I suppose everyone means the same by that, said Melissa, with a slight air of rebuke. Sir Gaviel is an excellent family man, quite blameless there, and so charitable round his place at Tip-Top, very different from Mr. Barabbas, whose life, my husband tells me, is most objectionable with actresses and that sort of thing. I think a man's morals should make a difference to us. I'm not sorry for Mr. Barabbas, but I am sorry for Gaviel Mantrap. I will not repeat my answer to Melissa, for I fear it was offensively brusque, my opinion being that Sir Gaviel was the more pernicious scoundrel of the two, since his name for virtue served as an effective part of a swindling apparatus, and perhaps I hinted that to call such a man moral showed rather a silly notion of human affairs. In fact, I had an angry wish to be instructive, and Melissa, as will sometimes happen, noticed my anger without appropriating my instruction, for I have since heard that she speaks of me as rather violent-tempered and not over-strict in my views of morality. 
I wish that this narrow use of words which are wanted in their full meaning were confined to women like Melissa. Seeing that morality and morals under their alias of ethics are the subject of voluminous discussion and their true basis a pressing matter of dispute, seeing that the most famous book ever written on ethics and forming a chief study in our colleges allies ethical with political science or that which treats of the constitution and prosperity of states, one might expect that educated men would find reason to avoid a perversion of language which lends itself to no wider view of life than that of a village gossip. Yet I find even respectable historians of our own and foreign countries, after showing that a king was treacherous, rapacious, and ready to sanction gross breaches in the administration of justice, end by praising him for his pure moral character, by which one must suppose them to mean that he was not lewd or debauched, not the European twin of the typical Indian potentate, whom Macaulay describes as passing his life in chewing bang and fondling dancing girls. And since we are sometimes told of such maleficent kings that they were religious, we arrive at the curious result that the most serious, wide-reaching duties of man lie quite outside both morality and religion, the one of these consisting in not keeping mistresses and perhaps not drinking too much, and the other in certain ritual and spiritual transactions with God, which can be carried on equally well side by side with the basest conduct toward men. With such a classification as this, it is no wonder considering the strong reaction of language on thought, that many minds, dizzy with indigestion of recent science and philosophy, are far to seek from the grounds of social duty, and without entertaining any private intention of committing a perjury which would ruin an innocent man, or seeking gain by supplying bad preserved meats to our navy, feel themselves speculatively obliged to inquire why they should not do so, and are inclined to measure their intellectual subtlety by their dissatisfaction with all answers to this why. It is of little use to theorize in ethics, while our habitual phraseology stamps the larger part of our social duties as something that lies aloof from the deepest needs and affections of our nature. The informal definitions of popular language are the only medium through which theory really affects the mass of minds, even among the nominally educated. And when a man whose business hours, the solid part of every day, are spent in an unscrupulous course of public or private action, which has every calculable chance of causing widespread injury and misery, can yet be called moral because he comes home to dine with his wife and children and cherishes the happiness of his own hearth, the augury is not good for the use of high ethical and theological disputation. Not for one moment would one willingly lose sight of the truth that the relation of the sexes and the primary ties of kinship are the deepest roots of human well-being. But to make them by themselves the equivalent of morality is verbally to cut off the channels of feeling through which they are the feeders of that well-being they are the original fountains of a sensibility to the claims of others, which is the bond of societies. But being necessarily, in the first instance, a private good, there is always the danger that individual selfishness will see in them only the best part of its own gain, 
just as knowledge, navigation, commerce, and all the conditions which are of a nature to awaken men's consciousness of their mutual dependence and to make the world one great society are the occasions of selfish, unfair action, of war and oppression, so long as the public conscience or chief force of feeling and opinion is not uniform and strong enough in its insistence on what is demanded by the general welfare. And among the influences that must retard a right public judgment, the degradation of words which involve praise and blame will be reckoned worth protesting against by every mature observer. To rob words of half their meaning while they retain their dignity as qualifications is like allowing to men who have lost half their faculties the same high and perilous command which they won in their time of vigor, or like selling food and seeds after fraudulently abstracting their best virtues. In each case, what ought to be beneficently strong is fatally enfeebled, if not empoisoned. Until we have altered our dictionaries and have found some other word than morality to stand in popular use for the duties of man to man, let us refuse to accept as moral the contractor who enriches himself by using large machinery to make pasteboard soles pass as leather for the feet of unhappy conscripts fighting at miserable odds against invaders. Let us rather call him a miscreant, though he were the tenderest, most faithful of husbands, and contend that his own experience of home happiness makes his reckless infliction of suffering on others all the more atrocious. Let us refuse to accept as moral any political leader who should allow his conduct in relation to great issues to be determined by egoistic passion, and boldly say that he would be less immoral even though he were as lax in his personal habits as Sir Robert Walpole, if at the same time his sense of the public welfare were supreme in his mind, quelling all pettier impulses beneath a magnanimous impartiality. And though we were to find among that class of journalists who live by recklessly reporting injurious rumors, insinuating the blackest motives in opponents, descanting at large and with an air of infallibility on dreams which they both find and interpret, and stimulating bad feeling between nations by abusive writing which is as empty of real conviction as the rage of a pantomime king, and would be ludicrous if its effect did not make it appear diabolical, though we were to find among these a man who was benignancy itself in his own circle, a healer of private differences, a soother in private calamities, let us pronounce him nevertheless flagrantly immoral, a root of hideous cancer in the commonwealth, turning the channels of instruction into feeders of social and political disease. In opposite ways, one sees bad effects likely to be encouraged by this narrow use of the word morals, shutting out from its meaning half those actions of a man's life which tell momentously on the well-being of his fellow citizens, and on the preparation of a future for the children growing up around him, thoroughness of workmanship, care in the execution of every task undertaken, as if it were the acceptance of a trust which it would be a breach of faith not to discharge well, is a form of duty so momentous that if it were to die out from the feeling and practice of a people, all reforms of institutions 
would be helpless to create national prosperity and national happiness. Do we desire to see public spirit penetrating all classes of the community and affecting every man's conduct so that he shall make neither the saving of his soul nor any other private saving an excuse for indifference to the general welfare? Well and good, but the sort of public spirit that scamps its breadwinning work, whether with the trowel, the pen, or the overseeing brain, that it may hurry to scenes of political or social agitation, would be as baleful a gift to our people as any malignant demon could devise. One best part of educational training is that which comes through special knowledge and manipulative or other skill with its usual accompaniment of delight in relation to work which is the daily breadwinning occupation, which is a man's contribution to the effective wealth of society in return for what he takes as his own share. But this duty of doing one's proper work well and taking care that every product of one's labor shall be genuinely what it pretends to be, is not only left out of morals in popular speech, it is very little insisted on by public teachers, at least in the only effective way, by tracing the continuous effects of ill-done work. Some of them seem to be still hopeful that it will follow as a necessary consequence from weekday services, ecclesiastical decoration, and improved hymn-books. Others apparently trust to descanting on self-culture in general, or to raising a general sense of faulty circumstances, and meanwhile lax makeshift work from the high conspicuous kind to the average and obscure is allowed to pass unstamped with the disgrace of immorality, though there is not a member of society who is not daily suffering from it materially and spiritually and though it is the fatal cause that must degrade our national rank and our commerce in spite of all open markets and discovery of available coal seams. I suppose one may take the popular misuse of the words morality and morals as some excuse for certain absurdities which are occasional fashions in speech and writing, certain old lay figures as ugly as the queerest Asiatic idol which at different periods get propped into loftiness and attired in magnificent Venetian drapery, so that whether they have a human face or not is of little consequence. One is the notion that there is a radical, irreconcilable opposition between intellect and morality. I do not mean the simplest statement of fact, which everyone knows, that remarkably able men have had very faulty morals and have outraged public feeling even at its ordinary standard. But the supposition that the ablest intellect, the highest genius, will see through morality as sort of twaddle for bibs and tuckers, a doctrine of dullness, a mere incidental in human stupidity. We begin to understand the acceptance of this foolishness by considering that we live in a society where we may hear a treacherous monarch or a malignant and lying politician or a man who uses either official or literary power as an instrument of his private partiality or hatred or a manufacturer who devises the falsification of wares or a trader who deals in virtueless seed grains praised or compassioned because of his excellent morals 
Clearly, if morality meant no more than such decencies as are practiced by these poisonous members of society, it would be possible to say without suspicion of light-headedness that morality lay aloof from the grand stream of human affairs, as a small channel fed by the stream and not missed from it. While this form of nonsense is conveyed in the public use of words, there must be plenty of well-dressed ignorance at leisure to run through a box of books, which will feel itself initiated in the Freemasonry of intellect by a view of life which might take for a Shakespearean motto, Fair is foul and foul fair, hover through the fog and filthy air, and will find itself easily provided with striking conversation by the rule of reversing all the judgments on good and evil which have come to be the calendar and clockwork of society. But let our habitual talk give morals their full meaning, as the conduct which in every human relation would follow from the fullest knowledge and the fullest sympathy a meaning perpetually corrected and enriched by a more thorough appreciation of dependence in things and a finer sensibility to both physical and spiritual fact and this ridiculous ascription of superlative power to minds which have no effective awe-inspiring vision of the human lot no response of understanding to the connection between duty and the material processes by which the world is kept habitable for cultivated men will be tacitly discredited without any need to cite the immortal names that all are obliged to take as the measure of intellectual rank and high-charged genius. Suppose a Parisian who should shuffle down the boulevard with a soul ignorant of the gravest cares and the deepest tendernesses of mankind, and a frame more or less fevered by debauchery, mentally polishing into utmost refinement of phrase and rhythm, verses which were an enlargement on that Shakespearean motto, and worthy of the most expensive title to be furnished by the vendors of such antithetic wares as Les Marguerites de l'Enfer, or Les Delices de Bilzebout. This supposed personage might probably enough regard his negation of these moral sensibilities, which make half the warp and woof of human history, his indifference to the hard thinking and hard handiwork of life, to which he owed even his own gauzy mental garments with their spangles of poor paradox, as the royalty of genius, for we are used to witness such self-crowning in many forms of mental attention. But he would not, I think, be taken even by his own generation as a living proof that there can exist such a combination as that of moral stupidity and trivial emphasis of personal indulgence with the large yet finely discriminating vision which marks the intellectual masters of our kind. Doubtless there are many sorts of transfiguration, and a man who has come to be worthy of our gratitude and reverence may have had his swinish period, wallowing in ugly places, but suppose it had been handed down to us that Sophocles or Virgil had at one time made himself scandalous in this way, the works which have consecrated their memory for our admiration and gratitude are not a glorifying of swinishness, but an artistic incorporation of the highest sentiment known of their age. All these may seem to be wide reasons for objecting to Melissa's pity for Sir Gavial Mantrap on the ground of his good morals, but their connection will not be obscure to anyone who has taken pains to observe the links uniting the scattered signs of our social development. 
End of chapter 16. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.